Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's Sermon Podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to learn from God's Word in the first epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth. We pray that God's Word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we are. Verses 1 through 13, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers have one for you. I'd love for you to look on this with me. You're welcome to look at your electronic device as well. But to really make it through today's text, I believe we have to kind of set some parameters, some ground rules, some things that we need to really, really establish for us to move forward. Because this text... Um, is one that shouldn't be taken lightly, and it's one that unfortunately has been incredibly neglected by the church or overly abused by the church in, in, the, in the history of the church. People have either really, really used this text to just destroy people or uh, to, to unfortunate, just as bad of an outcome. They've just completely ignored this text in the way that it, it, it speaks of us. And so as we dig into this section and go a little bit further into Corinthians, uh, the the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit and God moves through a really long series of difficult subjects that were basically brought to him as questions by the people in Corinth. And they were trying to establish, hey, things have kind of gone amok. You were here for 18 months planting a church. You've been gone. You're in Ephesus. We're really struggling. Last week, he, we talked about how he said, he ended the, the section with saying, look, I'm either going to come in a spirit of gentleness or I'm going to come with a rod. I'm either going to lovingly d- discipline you or I'm going to lovingly rejoice in the gentleness of what is happening. He's continued to speak to the people in Corinth as brothers, as brothers and sisters. He's, he's talking to them as believers. He's not saying you're not believers. He's speaking them to as believers. So here are the few things we have to establish for the text to land hopefully well for all of us and the spirit to do his work in our hearts. Is one is that God is holy. He is 100% holy, and he expects nothing less of us but holiness. We see this over and over and over again, all the way through De- Deuteronomy, Leviticus, it speaks over, I am holy, therefore be holy. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he says, calling to the holy people. So we see that this is a command of all of us. The word holy is used over 500 times in the Bible. We have to establish that God is holy. He is pure and beautiful. He gives us his Holy Spirit to sanctify us, and we are called to share in his holiness. I wrote it this way. He says, our holiness is the appropriate response to God's holiness. And it is only made possible by the gift and the grace of God. Holiness in the church comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The expectation of those of us that are in here today that profess the name of Jesus Christ is that we are to be holy. We are set apart from this world. We are to operate in a different way than the world around us operates. We are to be holy. Second thing we have to understand and establish is that sin is a really, really big deal. We can't make light of sin. And I'm not talking about preferential things that we don't like, distinctives or postures and how people move. I'm talking about what the Bible itself says, this is sinful, this is, this is sin. That is a very big deal. When we lessen that, we lessen the crucified Christ. Because when we make sin not a big deal, we say that it wasn't a big deal that Jesus went to the cross for us. God is holy We are commanded to be holy. Sin is a very, very big deal. Those have to be established in our hearts to understand where we're going to go through the rest of this scripture. And the third thing, and we kind of highlighted this last week, but discipline is intended to be redemptive and is loving. If you're disciplining just to punish and there's no redemption in it, it's not discipline, it's punishment. The way that God created discipline, discipline is to be a redemptive thing. It's to bring about redemption. It's to bring about repentance. Discipline is a beautiful thing. 
Discipline is one of those things that I think in today's culture we wrestle with completely because we feel like anything that's seemingly harsh is wrong. Yet God says himself, or the scripture says himself in Hebrews 12, 5, 6, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline happens from the Lord, and it's a beautiful, loving act. When the Apostle Paul ended last week's uh, section, and he says, do you, do you want me to come in the spirit of love? He's talking about both loving in gentleness or loving in discipline. Both carry about love. It is a foolish thing for us to believe that discipline is not loving. We have to see that. We have to establish that for us to get to where we're going to. This next one is, I don't believe that tolerance is a definitive character trait of God's. Now, before you stone me, okay, and throw me out here, let me explain that. Tolerance in the way that we use the word today. Tolerance in the way that we use is essentially universal acceptance. It's basically coming to the difference and being fine with it. That is not the God of Scripture. God is long-suffering. He is patient. He is ridiculously patient. In fact, those are attributes we can characterize him as which he would be forbearing, which some would maybe say that the scripture, depending upon which one you'd use, would translate that tolerance. But forbearing is a long suffering. It's a, it's I'm patiently waiting for something. But God is not tolerant saying, okay, I don't care if it's this way. I'll just accept it and move on. No, he sent his son to die for the things that displease him. He sent his son to pay for the penalty of sin, the death that we deserve. So when we are saying that tolerance is something that God is just so tolerant, he's just so tolerant. No, he is patient. He is patient. I've seen it in my own life. He is patient with me. He is patient with you. He is long-suffering. But he does not accept sin and just move on from it. He hates sin. The very same time that God is love, God is hate towards sin. We have to understand these things. If we just make them all love and tolerant, then we miss the fact that why did he send Jesus Christ to die for the sins that we all continually do? I don't believe that's a character trait of him. And the last thing we have to establish is that the Scripture is what we as a church are fully submitted to. We will only teach the Scripture. I plead for God to give us leaders the wisdom and the understanding and the awareness to submit ourselves entirely to Scripture. So that when, when we're given a choice to please people or to please God, we submit to God. Scripture has to be our final final stance on everything. Scripture has to be the first thing we go to and the last thing step out of. Scripture has to apply to everything in our life. We must be teaching it and living it. Not just teaching, not just living, but teaching and living. That is a commitment that we have. God is holy. He's expecting us to be holy. Sin is a very, very big deal. Sin is a very big deal. Discipline is intended to be redemptive and it is loving Tolerance is not a definitive character trait of God's. He is long-suffering and patient, but tolerance in the way that we use it, that is not how I would define God or see God in Scripture, and that Scripture is what we as a church are fully submitted to. Now that we've established that, let's dig into this Scripture, okay? Let's read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. This section is going to set up for us the posture for the rest of this letter, and so it's a very, very fun, pivotal section. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought not, oughtn't you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh." so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, so what's going on here is, is the Apostle Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians prior to this. We don't have it, and history doesn't show where it is, but in this letter we know that he's, he's mentioned a few things. He's talked about the sexual morality that's happening, and he's also talked about this individual that's in place that's going on. So what we know of this individual is that most likely this person is living and sleeping with his stepmother. We, we know it because of the way it's said here. We also don't know, now what we don't know is we don't know if his father's still alive, if they're divorced. We don't know exactly what's happening with his father in this situation, but we know that everyone in the church knows that this man is living and sleeping with his mother, who was a stepmother. To which, even in old Jewish law, this was wrong. This was something that, that the Old Testament was very clear. Deuteronomy talked about, you cannot do this. This is sin. This is considered incest. And so it's not good. And so what we know is, is that this has been happening with inside the church. This individual most likely is someone of prominence, someone of stature, maybe even wealth, or maybe he's, he's living with, he's, he's married his stepmother to keep the inheritance of his father. We don't necessarily know exactly why or how it's happening, but we know that ultimately it's wrong. Okay, it's absolutely wrong. And, and, and he's, even, he's making the statement saying, it's not only wrong in regards to Judaism or, or to following Christ, the pagans, the Gentiles don't even believe this is right, which is, again, to us, is it, we don't understand it exactly, but, but Rome at this time, pretty much everything was on sexually. Like, it was all acceptable in some way or another. Like, everything was okay to the Roman Empire at this day and age. And so, for them to even believe that it was wrong, which is true, that, that Romans didn't even believe that this was right, and the church is existing and moving and living because of this. Now, what's incredibly interesting is the Apostle Paul doesn't even speak to this man. He speaks to the church. What's interesting is he doesn't even speak to the man. He speaks to the church. And his, his, his correction and his course of action, what he's expecting the church to do, comes to them, not what is in this individual. He's saying, look, I've, I've already written and I've already spoken to you about this. And he says things like, this person is, is to be cleansed He's to, be, he's to be put out of this. And so we see in this text, Paul kind of says, look, there's two postures, there's two responses. There's the response that the church is operating in, and here's the response that I really want the church to do. In this day and age, even in, in the Judeo-Christian Judea moral restrictions, there was a statement that would say, it was, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Guys, this time was really, really dark. And, and sexuality was a big, big issue. And if you remember, in the very beginning of us talking about Corinthians, Dr. Voorhees came in and talked, and he said, one of the biggest issues for the people of Corinth is they stopped seeing the value of the body. They saw themselves as the spirit was, I'm in the spirit, and so I'm removed. So it doesn't matter what happens to my body. And so they were just living as if their bodies were still of this world because their spirit had been redeemed. 
He's saying, no, no, you, you, you can't do this. What you're doing is wrong. And the church is showing up arrogance. Now, we don't know if this is arrogance or puffed up in the sense of them being really tolerant or if it, like saying, we know, this is, we, know this, we know that they know this is happening because it's, it's public enough and it's been going on long enough that we know that this has been happening. But their arrogance is that they're not going to deal with it. They aren't worried about it. They believe they're too tolerant. Or they believe that they, they have understood a new understanding or they're enlightened beyond the level of what this means or we're just really showing grace. Whatever their arrogance is, it's the same issue that's been dividing them as a church. Pride, arrogance has been dividing them as a church up to this point. He's saying you're puffed up, you're arrogant. You're arrogant about something that even the pagans wouldn't accept. Even the the people around outside of the church would say this is wrong. And you as a church, as the bride of Christ, as the holy temple, like in chapter three, making up the temple of God, you're operating as if it's not a big deal. You're operating like it doesn't really matter. Pride and arrogance had not only led to divisions among them, but to a callous insensitivity to sin. See, what happens with pride is is pride can make us blind to the condition of sinners around us. It's a complete blinder for us. And pride, again, is the reason why they're operating this way. Before we get to Paul's response, I have to remind you, this isn't a one-time thing. Okay, this individual, it wasn't like he did this once and then was repentant or even struggling. This is a, this is, he's living He's operating. He's going to church with. He's partaking in the Lord's Supper with. This wasn't a, hey, I did this once. This is his life now. This is his new life. This is my woman. He's, he's become one with his stepmother in the physical act. Paul says our response, and I think this is, if there's one thing you could take from today, this is one of those things that I think just hit me so hard this week. Is, is what Paul says of the church, what they ought to be doing. He said, you ought to be to mourning. You ought to be saddened by this. That, that word mourn, that, the way it's actually translated, the way it's used, it's, it's, the, it's the mourning that happens when you've lost a loved one at a funeral. There's some scholars say that it's actually the mourning as if the sin has been done by yourself. How many of us have ever mourned like that over our own sin, let alone someone else's sin in our community? That's the expectation. That's the posture with which the church is to be seeing what's happening with this man and this woman is a grief, a a brokenness, a sadness. I think one of the most amazing schemes of the enemy in this world is to make us where we don't no longer are saddened by sin, but accept it or just move on it. Sin should grieve us. Why? Because God is holy. And what does he expect for us? To be holy, to be set apart for him. Why Why should sin grieve us? Because it took our Lord, to the cross to pour out his blood and to be broken for sin. Sin should grieve us. Our own sinfulness should grieve us. But he's saying here, he's saying you ought to mourn like someone in your family has just died if one of your brothers or sisters is in sin. I don't don't know if many people in the church today do that. In fact, I think more what happens is we get self-righteous and we start pointing at them, look at them and judge them and point them out. We never grieve. This is important because if you don't have this posture, then the actual process in which the, the Apostle Paul lays out for us to, to do with a sinner like this can become a very self-righteous, condemning, negative thing as opposed to redemptive, beautiful, and loving thing. You are to be grieved. King Josiah in 2 Kings 22, this, you'll have to go back and read all of 2 Kings. It's really good. But in this section, basically he's, he's building the, this place and he kind of set, establishes, hey, we're going to rebuild the temple and all these things. Well, while they're doing it, some people unearthed the, the book of the law that they hadn't been following forever. 
And one of them brings it to him and starts reading it to King Josiah. He's like, hey, listen to this and listen to this and listen to this. And King Josiah gets up, tears his robe and begins to weep after hearing this. Why? Because he realizes just how far off him and his ancestors before him were to God's laws. He weeps, and God's response to him in 2 Kings 22, verses 19 through 20, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord. Hear that. You humbled yourself. It takes humility to see the brokenness of sin, not pride, because you humbled yourself, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. God expends out mercy because he humbled himself. He saw, he grieved. He saw the, how far off. He's like, man, we are so far off. And he just wept. When's the last time you sat in front of Scripture and just wept because your life did not match it? When's the last time you were grieving over a brother or sister because they were so far from the truth of God and it just brought you to your knees before the Lord pleading for him to do something in their life? If holiness is the standard, then anything short of that should bring about immense mourning, should grieve us. So Paul's response is that we should be one of mourning and grieving. And then he says, you are to excommunicate this person. You are to put this person out. Now, what we, we need to see is the very last verse of this section is, is word for word with Deuteronomy. And, and the list of swindlers and idolaters and greed and all those, that's a list of people that are in Deuteronomy as well. And it was the same laws that were in place for God, for the Israelites, and how they were to deal with people in the community as God's chosen people as the Israelites. So the Apostle Paul, what he's saying today is not anything new to any Jewish person. Now, remember, a lot of these are Greeks, and they had not heard of the old Jewish laws. But what he's basically saying is like, this is the standard. It was the standard for God's holy people, the Israelites. It's the standard today as God's temple, the children of God, brought to him by Jesus Christ. And this is the standard. He says, this is how we are to work with people. Now, Matthew 18, Jesus gives a very clear understanding of how we are to work through discipline. So you are to talk to the person individually, you are to go with two or three witnesses, then you are to bring them to the church, and then in front of the church, you should treat them like an unbeliever. And that's the process in Matthew 18. The Apostle Paul is saying here, we are to give this man over to the destruction of Satan. Now most of us hear that, like, man, that is so harsh. So harsh. And like I said, many churches have abused this. They say, oh, well, you're, you've sinned, you've done this. If I just take oh, he's sinning, place him, give him over to Satan for the destruction of his soul, and I lose the sight of mourning, and I lose sight of the last part, which is so that his spirit may be saved. The very purpose of discipline is for redemption. Now, what's difficult in our day and age is that if they had set him out in Corinth, now, since we're a little, like, oh, it's heavy, right? Second Corinthians 2, 5 through 7, some scholars believe that the person they're talking about bringing back in is this individual. He's saying, hey, you're supposed to forgive him and love him. And he's, the fact that he's already, he's already feeling the pain of what he's done because he's been isolated, now bring him, welcome him back in because he's repentant. Again, we don't know that for sure, but some have said that that's potentially this person. The whole purpose of church discipline is to help people feel the isolation of their decisions, to feel the weight of what they've done. Now, what's hard here is if I discipline, if you guys discipline me out, I can just go to another church down the block. And unfortunately, many churches won't do this. In this day and age, if you were disciplined out, it wasn't like you're like, oh, I'll just go to the next church in Corinth. You were, you were isolated. And what he's saying is you're feeling the weight of you no longer have the covering of the community around you. You no longer have the blessing and the, the joy that comes from fellowship. 
You no longer have the, the safety net of accountability where you have a believer standing next to you saying, hey, Bren, this isn't right. You're, you're veering off. Look what the scriptures say here. You need to do this. You don't have that covering anymore. You're out on your own left for destruction. Now, this word destruction is a very hard one, okay? A very, very hard one. But I'll say this without going too deep into it. There are many ways in which we can view this. There are many people that believe that this will bring about, by letting someone out, they'll bring about illnesses and struggles and, and, and potentially even death. We even see that in, in chapter 11. We'll talk about that when we get there in Corinthians, when people are doing the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. We see Ananias lying in, in Acts and, and instantly dropping. There's, there's, there's definitely that. But we also see Jesus in Luke 9. when the disciples are like, hey, this person's blind. Was it the sins of his father or sins of this person, sins of this? And Jesus says, no, 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 you, you've got it all wrong. His blindness is here to display the power of God. It's not, it's not about sins. It's that I can display the power of God through healing this person. So we can see scriptures that say it's any and all. Job went through absolute torment. He was given over to Satan because God was boasting about him. There's no sin there. Is this going to happen in any way, shape, or form? Now, before we go any further, I want to establish a few other ground rules about who he's not talking about. This is, what I, this is where I think we can struggle. When we think about church discipline, we start thinking about people around us. Well, they're sinning. Well, they're sinning. They're sinning. They're sinning. This is not someone that's struggling or battling with sin. This is not someone that continually messes up in front of a computer screen but continually repents and desires to do something different and is struggling. That can be a battle for years, and this is not who this person's talking about. Who this is is this is a person that says, I am doing what is contrary to God's word, and I just don't care, but I bear the name of Christ. So people say, well, this is just the way I believe God is more loving. He's more just. He's more, he's more caring in my posture in this way. This is who he's talking about. He's not talking about a brother or sister that's struggling at sin. He's not talking about someone that doesn't bear the name of Christ. Hear me on this. He's not talking about anyone here or anyone in this world that doesn't call themselves a Christian. This process does not apply to those individuals. How dare we expect them to operate like Christ when they don't have Christ? It's not talking about those people. And it's not talking about someone that committed the most heinous sin you can imagine once. It's not talking about that person either. It's not talking about a young Christian or new convert that either doesn't know yet or is still early in their sanctification. And I've seen so many new believers get beat up by the church. You should know better by this. You should do these things. It's still, they're still infants. I don't look at baby Royce back there and be like, why aren't you walking, dude? It doesn't make sense. It's not talking about those. And it's definitely not talking about someone that is seeking or interested or curious about God. These lines blur for us because all of a sudden now it's like, whoa, hang on a second. I don't... I don't really know. And you're right. You may not ever know their heart. The simplest way is, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Yes, he's the Lord and Savior of my life. Great, then what you're doing is sinful. Would you recognize that, that he commands of you to do something different? And for some people, that may be the first time they ever heard that. I had no idea. What do I do? How do I do differently? What's, what's going on? This is that sanctification process. He's not talking about those people. He's talking about people that say, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is my Lord and Savior, but I will sleep with my girlfriend until my heart's content. And I don't care because someday we're going to get married. That's what he's talking about. Not that I struggle or I'm wrestling. It's that I just don't care. You know what? I know what the scriptures say about drunkenness. In fact, drunkards are even on here. But I don't care. I love getting drunk. Well, I'm not drinking. It's just, it's just pot. I'm just getting high. Well, I don't care. Like He's talking about the people that don't care that bear the name of Christ. That's what he's talking about here, guys. Church discipline is reserved for those individuals. I am so completely honored. We talk about this in our, 
um, basics class, we talk about how we do operate with church discipline here. I'm so grateful that as a church, predominantly most of the discipline never ever makes it to the church level. I, I can tell you uh, tons and tons of times, tons of conversations where someone said, I noticed sin in someone else's life and they went and had a conversation with them or they went as a gospel community and this person repented and turned. And it's just a beautiful and a profound and, a, and, and the way it's supposed to be. Very rarely has it ever, ever come to the full church level. We are to be relentlessly pursuing one another in this way. So one would say, why must the man's flesh be destroyed? Why must such a drastic action be taken against it? If you read 1 Corinthians 5 with 3, 16, and 17 in mind, which is him talking about that the believer is the temple of God. And he, he talked about this in three years. You'll have to go back a few weeks to listen to it. But he, he said, this is your, your, you are the temple. You, and that was a plural you. That is all of us. That is not just an individual. When we get to the next section up here, it talks about the temple. That's, that's an individual. But right now he's saying collectively, you, church at Corinth, you, church here at Rev, you are the temple of God. And he says, anyone that will destroy the temple, God will destroy. For God's temple is holy, and that is what we are. That is what you are. That's what he's talking about here. He says, look, this is a big deal to destroy these things. You are to put this person out from underneath you. So he goes in and he says, look, as if I'm there in spirit, by the power of Jesus Christ, do this collectively. It wasn't an individual thing where people go behind the back and say, hey, we're just gonna kick this person quietly out the door. It was a collective thing. They gathered together and said, this person will not repent. They will not recognize the ways in which they say that they are followers of Jesus and how their life is completely misaligned with that. It was a very public, public thing. And then he says, not to even associate with that person. Now, associate is, is, we use the word kind of associate just in passing. This word means like a deep, like close relationship. It says you're not to have a close relationship with this person. This person is not to be welcome to take part in the Lord's Supper, not to take part in the church as a whole, but this person is meant to be treated as an unbeliever, is what Jesus says. In 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul tells us to treat him as a brother, so which one is it, brother or unbeliever? What do we do here? And I think in both situations, if you take them together, you recognize the purpose is that they should and hopefully will return to God. It will be a people that will return to God. It will be a people that will follow the Lord. They won't run from Him. We must teach and submit the entirety of Scripture no matter how we feel about it or what the world says around us about it. We must live this way. Now, in church discipline today, I think this still applies, and I think that the church is still expected to do this. I don't think this was a, a specific to this time. But I would say this. If we are to treat this person as a brother or an unbeliever, both ways we are to pursue them. So they may not partake in the greater thing, but as an individual, if you have a friend that, you had, that was a part of discipline, you are to pursue them as an unbeliever, to show them love, to continue to, to draw them out, to show them who Christ is. We're not to move them from way, which is what... These Corinthians were thinking it was that they were to judge the world. This is what he says at the end of his letter. He's like, wait a second. No, you guys missed it. I didn't say that you were supposed to, to not associate with these idolaters and swindlers, the people of the world, because for that would be impossible for you to do. I'm talking about those that bear the name of Christ, those that call themselves Christian. Those are the ones that you're not to associate with. As far as the world, you're to be right in the middle of that. In fact, I'm going to place you in job places and in your neighborhoods. I'm going to place you in the middle of that, in your schools and all these things. I'm going to stick you right in the middle of that so that you can be salt and light, so that you can show idolaters and swindlers and all these other people what it means to have hope in Jesus Christ. We're not to judge them. That's, that's God's doing. 
This is for those in, inside the church. And I want to, again, just clarify a couple things. This is not a preferential thing. If the Lord has given you an amazing ability through His Spirit to defeat a certain sin in your life, but your brother is still struggling with it, this isn't a high and mighty thing. This is an opportunity for you to walk and to disciple them into that and help them see where the Lord has brought about freedom in your life. Many people will view discipline as, a, as an opportunity to just squash someone else in process. That's not what God's talking about here. There's a, there's a couple things that we can take from this text as we get ready to go. I'm not going to actually talk about any of the, the groups of people here that are sexually immoral and all those things. We're going to hit a lot of that in chapter 6, so we'll just go ahead and dig in deep there. But there's a couple things that I want us to end with today in, in regards to this scripture. First off is that we must be a place that offers salvation to anyone who would submit their life to Jesus as Lord. We've got to be a people who are patient and long-suffering and persistent in pursuing those that don't know Jesus Christ yet. So what that means is we don't hold up our sign and say, okay, here's, what you ha- here's how you have to operate to come to know Jesus. We say, no, Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit will take care of the sanctification process. I'm just going to continue to show you who the hope is of Jesus Christ. We have got to be a place where people can come where they completely disagree with everything we are, but they don't bear the name of Christ, and they can be welcomed into our gospel communities, they can be welcomed into this community, and they can be welcomed to walk alongside so that they can see what it means for a child of God to operate in this dark, dark world. We've got to be a place like that. If we lack patience to anyone that doesn't view the same way of us, we, we need to ask the Lord to give us patience for that. If we would rather dismiss an entire people group because of their beliefs, that's not, that's not forbearing. That's not, the, that's not the love of God. We've got to be a people that are relentless about showing others the salvation of Jesus Christ no matter their background. Um, we must be a place that weeps over a brother or sister that gives themselves to willful, continual biblical sin, not sin that we like the idea of, but something that's defined in the Bible as sin. We've got to be a people that, we've got to get back to a spot where we're no longer like, it's just the norm for us to see the sin. Like, it should, it should break our hearts, whether it's something that happens on the national level or something that happens in our individual level or in our neighborhoods or in our families. We've got to be a people that weep over the brokenness and the sinfulness of believers. I mean, no longer just standing in self-righteous pride, air, angry at them. Like, we've got to be broken to our knees for them. Because we are not going to walk with them lovingly if we're just standing in self-righteous pride. We must be a people that weep over our brothers and sisters that are sinning. And we also must be people in that that are willing to walk people through repentance. Which means, just, let me just save you there, that means that there's going to be someone in your life that is bearing the name of Christ, that is walking in sin, that wants to repent, and they're going to need someone to walk with them. And that's our role as a church. That's our job as the body of Christ, to walk with these people, to restore them back to these things. This is a good thing. The scriptures tell us it's a good thing if someone keeps their brother from sinning. We must be a people that are willing to do that. Which, for that to happen, we must be humble enough to receive a grace-filled warning of sin in our lives by the community God has around us. Let me say that again. We must be humble enough to receive a grace-filled warning of sin in our lives by a community God has around us, which means three things, okay? If we must be this, if we're gonna be people this way, the first one, it means that we actually have to put ourselves in painfully close proximity to other people and other believers. If we're gonna be humble enough to receive the correction of sin, no longer are you allowed to just kind of walk in and out of a church or a spiritual community where no one knows anything about you because you're at risk, you're at danger. The, the, the whole reason why this is important is the whole basis that the Paul gives on the leaven. 
He's talking about the Passover lamb. He's saying, look, this is when the children of God left Egypt and they were walking out. The, the God's the last, the 10th plague was death of the firstborn. He said, take a lamb, slaughter it, and put its blood over its doorpost and, the, and the, the, the angel of destruction will pass over you. And they left in haste so they didn't have any leaven. What they would do in this day was leaven, not yeast. It was, it was kind of this leaven idea that would basically partially ferment and it would help raise the loaf. So they'd make a loaf and they'd take a little piece and save it aside for the next one. And every year or so, they'd have to replace it anyways for kind of cleanliness sake. But this was a structure that happened in their Passover. He's saying, you live now post the Passover because Jesus Christ died on the Passover. He is your lamb. He is taking care of it. Be unleavened. And he's saying, a little bit of leaven, a little sin, just a teeny bit, will change and grow and affect others. I've had a few close friends that have had to deal with cancer. And I've never, ever met one of them when they said they were going to go in for surgery. Like, yeah, just take most of it out, okay? The rest, leave, leave the 10% there, it's fine. No, it was a, no, we want all of this completely out of me. Because if left in there, it will continue to fester and grow. You see this in your own life. You see this in the life of those you love that have walked away from the Lord, have fallen away from the Lord, or have run from the Lord. You see this. It ruins a whole community. So you have to be in close proximity to people. My heart breaks for you if you are here today and you don't know anyone. If you're just kind of coming in and coming out and you're not, you're not letting people get in your life, you're not doing the, the nitty-gritty of having to be in someone else's life and it's annoying and, man, you don't like it necessarily and it takes up time in your week. If you're just doing life without that, man, you are in a horribly risky spot. The second thing that that means is that you, you have to be willing to open, open up with them and let them in. I have lots of people and lots of people that are here like, oh, yeah, I go to gospel community every week great, does anyone know anything about you? Nope. Nope, because I'm too pride and too afraid of letting people in. It doesn't just take being present. You have to be willing to open yourself up and say, hey, here's, here's my brokenness. Here's what's wrong with me. Here's where I wish the Lord would, would redeem more. Can you help walk me through this? I'm done accepting this sinfulness in my life. I'm done living as if this is a sinfulness that I'm going to carry for the rest of my life and believing that the Spirit of God doesn't have the power to crush that in me. And then the third thing is that you have to be relentlessly pleading the Lord, in his grace, to strip you of all your pride so that the first two have a chance of happening. If you want to be in community, the only way those first two are going to happen is you're going to be stripped of pride, of your comfort, of your building your lifestyle and your, your mission and your things and, and surrendering to the kingdom of God's mission and goal and recognizing like, oh, I don't really feel like I need people around me. Yeah, but people may need you. How arrogant of us to believe that we don't need anything when there's people around us that need. You must... Ask the Lord, plead with the Lord to strip you of the pride to do this. We must teach and submit the entirety of Scripture no matter how we feel about it or what the world around us says about it. Many will continue to view the whole notion of church discipline and certainly excommunication as repulsive and unloving. Yet such people fail to grasp God's utter repugnance to sin and his infinitely perfect standards of holiness. Further, we must avoid a cheap grace that refuses to force professing believers to face up to the destructive consequences of grossly immoral behavior. They are not only damaging themselves by allowing sin to go unchecked, but also destroying the church. The scholar said this way, he said, to shut our eyes to offenses is, is not always a kind thing to do. It may be damaging. It has been said that our one security against sin lies in our being shocked at it. Yet discipline should never be exercised for the satisfaction of the person who exercises it, but always for the mending of the person who has sinned and for the sake of the church. I was talking with Danny this week, and he said it this way. He said, the goodness of Jesus signs as bright as it does because of the depravity of the world around us. When we look at this situation and we see this 
feeling, and maybe we're feeling the tension right now in our own lives where we know there's, there's leaven in us that needs to be removed. Like, God, man, there's, I've, God, I've been, like, I've been like carrying these things. God, I want you to just rip it off from me. When we feel that, we can find ourselves getting a little down, which Jesus shines the brightest when we compare it to this dark world and the sinfulness of ourselves. We recognize that he died for our sins. We will continue to pursue the Lord in every way. Some of you, like last week, need to hear this as an admonishment, as a warning, as a caution. You're, you're walking dangerously close to a line that you should be very, very far from. You're playing with something that, that is absolutely foolish to play with, and it's sin. And sin is not going to just stay compartmentalized in your life. It is going to affect your families. It's going to affect the people around you. And unfortunately, in some cases, it will literally destroy the church of God in some. Churches have been brought down. Now, God will continue to build his church, big C church, but little C churches have been destroyed by sin. So where are you at with this? Has someone been trying to talk to you about sinfulness in your life and you've been ignoring them? You've been pridefully pushing them away. You've been avoiding them. Maybe it's time to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to be in this spot. Because here's, no matter what is true, I can see sin in your life way better than I can see it in the mirror. And I need, I need people around me to go, Bren, you keep making yourself look like you're a lot stronger than you are in the mirror. You aren't. You've lost some, you know, you're getting fatter, right? Like, I need people to see me the way that I really am, not the way I see myself in the mirror. That's the truth for you, too. The band's going to come up. We're going to worship. As we do, I would encourage you to do a few things. One is I would encourage you to not worship God by going through the motions. If you are feeling convicted today, and I, I, I plead and I pray it's not me. I pray it's the Spirit of God. If you're feeling convicted, don't run from that. Remain under it. Stay put. Say, God, what are you, what are you doing? What are you stirring? What's, what's going on? And I hope if you, if you have people that are around you that, are, that you know or people like, I feel like, I'm, I feel like I'm supposed to do something with this. I'm struggling with this. Like, I, I pray that you would push into those conversations with people. Ask them, say, hey, am I sinning here? Like, I, I feel like the scripture applies. Like, help me understand this. Like, let's really, really dig into this. If you're sitting here and you're thinking of someone else that needs to be disciplined out, I hope you're weeping for them. I hope you're broken for them before you ever have a conversation. How dare us walk in with pride and arrogance say, all right, you know what, get out of your sinner. I hope you fall on your face pleading for Jesus to work in their lives, pleading for the Spirit of God to turn this unrepentant sinner to, to repentance. If you've been thinking about someone that needs to be disciplined this whole time, I challenge you to break your heart for them first. Plead with the God to say, I want to hurt like they hurt. I want to feel the, the consequences of their sins. I want to feel that in my heart before I even have a conversation with them. And if you need to have a conversation and you're not doing, how dare you sit disobediently to God? How dare you believe that that's some lie of, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm a more accepting person. That's not what God commands of us. If your brother or sister or spouse is in sin, you are to lovingly, graciously approach them in love and be patient and long-suffering. If you see sinfulness in someone else, you must go to them to seek to understand. Go to them and say, hey, I got a question. Like, not, hey, I see this. Hey, I'm, I'm curious. It feels like, or it seems. Don't, don't come in hot. But would your heart be broken for them? Don't disobey God by ignoring that. Don't disobey God by, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's Bren's job. He'll go do it. I'll bring him into it. By standard, you just skip four steps in Matthew by bringing me into it. So you really actually have to do it yourself first. Would you do it? And then the last thing is, is if there is sin in your life, if there's something that you're just, you're wrestling with, you're struggling with, and you maybe even believe that you can't defeat it, you're right, you can't. It's the Spirit of God in you that will but you don't have to keep walking in it. If you're in here right now and you're like, I know what the scriptures say, what I'm supposed to be doing with my finances, but I just don't care. I wanted a boat. 
Submit yourself to the Lord. Let the scriptures truly be what they are, living and active. Let his spirit do what he's commanded, what he's promised to do, which is sanctify you and make you more like Jesus Christ. You know what that means, guys? That means you're gonna fit in less to this world and fit in more with Christ, and that's a better place to be. We pray, Heavenly Father, I thank you for difficult texts, knowing that I can fear getting in the way of what you desire to speak to your, your children. And so, God, I pray that if anyone's in here is convicted, I pray that your spirit would continue to work with them and walk with them in that. God, if anyone is in here um, and they're sitting and they're angry with me right now, God, I pray that they would just, they would just soften themselves and ask what you're trying to speak of them. God, I, I want so badly for every single one of us in this room to be enamored with you. I want so badly for every single one of us in this room to be appalled by sin the way that you are appalled by sin because you sent Jesus Christ to die for that sin. God, forgive us for, for allowing the culture to maybe bring it down a little bit or allowing us to be so mixed in this world where we no longer see or, or really struggle with the sinfulness of those around us. God, for the individuals that are needing to have conversations, would your spirit just be moving in those conversations so that people aren't affected by the flesh or the pride? I pray that people would remove the log or the plank from their own eye before they, they talk to someone else about the splinter in theirs. And God, I pray that in all of these conversations, what is brought out isn't, isn't, wow, this is a condemning place or that's a condemning person, but instead is brought out, man, it is amazing to see the redemption of God work in the lives of people that are willing to walk together. And God, as we worship, I pray that we wouldn't worship and go through the motions. I pray that if, we're, if right now we're struggling, if we're in a spot where we know you're convicting us of our sinfulness right now and we're trying to think of how we can share this sinfulness without too many consequences in place, God, I pray that we would just relinquish control and give it all to you and say, I don't care what needs to happen. I want to stand fully naked before you, redeemed. God, if we're in here and we realize that we've seen the growth and the amazing work that you've done in, in redeeming us in our sinfulness, God, would you see us, help us be in the lives of other people that need that same understanding. God, we, we ask for your discipline because we know that your discipline is loving and it brings about redemption and repentance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.